The last thing Steve Jobs said before he died was, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Reportedly, the last thing Thomas Edison said was simply, it's very beautiful over there. Now we hear about cases like this because these are celebrities, but this is happening all over. In hospital rooms and in homes all around the world, people, as they're approaching the very end of their lives, say these beautiful, poetic, confusing, mysterious things. Is it just nonsense, or is there a deeper meaning to it? And if there is, how do we understand it? How can we learn to speak their language? Tonight we're going to explore this phenomenon and hear from the researchers that are trying to find the answers to these questions. Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. If you're joining us live, sorry for that short delay, we're only human. I really appreciate you coming out. My name is Curtis Childs, I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, and I'll be your host for tonight. Remember, as always, there's a live question and answer at the end, so get your questions in now, and we'll get to have you as part of the discussion also part of the discussion today, we have a couple of very special guests. Uh, joining us remotely is Raymond Moody. Dr. Raymond Moody has a PhD in philosophy and an MD in psychiatry and is the best-selling author of 12 books, including Life After Life, which has sold over 13 million copies worldwide, as well as numerous articles in academic and professional literature. He has been involved in over four decades of research into unintelligible language. Dr. Moody has received awards, including the World Humanitarian Award in Denmark in 1988. He is a leading authority on the near-death experience, a phrase he coined in the late 70s. The New York Times calls him the father of the near-death experience. He's appeared on Oprah, Geraldo, and many other mainstream TV programs, and is currently in the process of publishing his new book, The Unintelligible Afterlife. So, Raymond, thank you so much for being on the program with us today. Thank you very much, Curtis. I'm just delighted uh, that you're interested in this. Oh, well, how, how could I not be interested in this? It's such fascinating material. So helping the two of us out will be another very special guest, Dr. Erica Hyatt. We have her in the studio with us. Dr. Erica Goldblatt Hyatt is an assistant professor and department chair of psychology at Bernathan College. She has a doctorate in clinical social work from the University of Pennsylvania and has worked with adults and children coping with terminal illness, the seriously mentally ill, and individuals suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Her new book, Grieving for the Sibling You Lost will be out in September 2015 through Harboring Our Press. Erica, thanks so much for joining us as well. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we got all our guests ready, and now let's get to work. As we were mentioning in the intro, there's this phenomenon where people who are getting close to death, and people we love and care about, say these mysterious things. What does it all mean? Now we're going to take a look at the meaning of nonsense. Great. Okay, so uh, I assembled this group of people, and Raymond in particular, a lot of people know you from your work on near-death experiences, but now you're working on this phenomenon of unintelligible speech. And so how d did the two connect, and what is this phenomenon of unintelligible speech? Well, um, my very first interest as a kid uh, in terms of the subject was astronomy and when I was about seven or eight years old and um, uh, I quickly realized and at that age that you, you naturally think of the question as a when you're interested in astronomy if 
what size and shape is this universe we're in? Mm -hmm. But then I suspect that many others listening had the same experience that I did, that your mind goes to the supposed boundary or wall, right? Yep. And then you think, well, just a minute, there's got to be something on the other side of a wall. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense to say that the, earth, the universe comes to an end, then a wall, and it doesn't make sense to say that it doesn't come in and come to an end in a wall that it just goes on and on forever and very early in my life I was just captivated by these things that don't seem to be to make sense that your mind just strains and strains to put a meaning on but but it's hopeless and um, so I was not interested uh, in um, um, this the subject of um, life after death when I was a kid, but I was very interested in the writings of people like Lewis Carroll was my, I guess, my favorite author when mm -hmm. I was a young kid, and uh, my favorite comic books were Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge written by a wonderful Disney artist named Carl Barks who influenced great people in our culture like uh, Spielberg and Lucas and many others with his wonderful comic books. and they were full of all kinds of interesting nonsense. So I just grew up like this, uh, re reading um, Dr. Seuss and uh, later on Shel Silverstein when I mm -hmm. got the early 70s. And uh, when I was a graduate student uh, of philosophy, you know, analytic philosophy uh, is one of the cardinal concepts of the analytic strain of philosophy is the notion of nonsense. Some of the early logical positivists, so on, uh, as, as they were called, uh, tried to tell us that all philosophical, uh, all of the classical philosophical questions are actually unintelligible nonsense. So mm -hmm. that's my background in it. I wrote my doctoral dissertation in philosophy on 19, in 1969 on a uh, closely related subject and continued when I was a philosophy professor and throughout my medical training and my psychiatric career. I have constantly watched and monitored um, nonsense, read nonsense poetry and so on, and I think it's just one of those things that um, has been missed in our society. Now, to relate this to the question of um, what happens when we're dying or in the dying process, I, like every other physician I, I, I'm sure, noticed when I was in my training that in the terminal phase of life, those last few days and hours of life, Patients often talk nonsense. Uh, when you listen to them, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Right. And yet you're very intrigued by this. And um, also, I, I specialized a lot in helping terminally ill people through their final illness and, uh, and also counseling their, their loved ones who were left behind after the death. And I heard recurrently from people who had been left behind, they would say something like, well, I knew it was nonsense when my husband was saying it, and yet, almost in a haunting, haunted way, they say, and yet somehow in the back of my mind, I felt that I kind of understood it or I made something of it deep mm -hmm. down. 
And so um, I, I have been working on a, a book on nonsense for, for many, many years now. And uh, I talked about the findings that I just mentioned to you in, in a, in a uh, university course I taught about two and a half years ago. And there was a woman there, a very nice and very brilliant woman named Lisa Smart who was getting ready to retire from her career. Um, she had been a graduate in linguistics from the University of California. And the reason she came to my presentation on near-death experiences and so on was that she was, number one, looking for something to do as going through retirement, but also some weeks before her father had died. And during the last few days of his life, he was talking nonsense, which mm. she wrote down. So incredibly, when I mentioned this at the end, she sprang right up and she said she would like to do her research on this. So um, Lisa has put together a really terrific research program of recording the dying utterances, the nonsensical and often very figurative or metaphorical language of people in the dying process on the expectations that since I have worked out a, um, a typology of, nons of nonsense, if, if we can call it that. In other sure. words, um, nonsense is, is something that is a far more complex entity than we imagine in our daily life. You know, we think of nonsense as something unidimensional. But actually, there's over 70 different types of nonsense that I have identified. Well, what is a type of nonsense? Well, listen to this. "'Twas brilliant in the slithy toves to Garen Gimble in the wave." Now, that's one type of nonsense. Did you just make that so, up? Or? <laughs> uh, no, that's from Joyce Carroll. Yes, yeah. Listen, listen to this one. Um, holiness pursues the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. Well, you see that that's nonsense too, but it's a wholly different pattern, right? Mm -hmm. Or listen to this one: that cannibal you just you that cannibal you men just day was the last one around here. That's yet a different pattern of nonsense. So mm -hmm. I've identified these seventy different patterns. Now, the thought that Lisa is working with, and I. Just from my experience and um, from some preliminary things we've done, uh, I think that Erica and Lisa are going to find out some phenomenal things with this research that they're doing. They are um, <clears throat> recording the, as I said, the nonsensical or highly figurative utterances of people in the terminal phase of life. And we fully expect that we will find some very, very interesting patterns in these communications. Yeah, it's exciting. And that's part of why I wanted to have all of you on the show was to hear a little bit about that. And I just wanted to also note that when you talked about people talking about loved ones who are who are getting ready to die and they say, I I know that it means something. I understand it. There's really an emotional sort of component to the whole thing. It's not just intellectual. So, yes. and with that in mind, Erica, I'd love to hear some some about your involvement with the sure. phenomenon. Absolutely. Well, I have spent most of my professional career prior to becoming a professor in the field of death and dying, and mm. um, much like Raymond, struggled with this idea of boundary, especially around death. What happens when we physically stop? 
And uh, so for myself, I spend a lot of time at the bedsides of dying adults and children and uh, eventually providing bereavement counseling. And there was this similar phenomenon happening. Mm -hmm. And also with um, some of my patients who entered delirious states who would come back once they'd recovered saying, I wasn't making sense, but I was still there. I was still there. I just Mm. couldn't communicate. And so I started to think a little bit about the continuum of personality. So when when we who are healthy and in right mind... So-called. Right. (laughs) See this this phenomenon happening of this strange nonsense, um, it's distressing to us. And yet there's something happening with that person there. It's like they're straddling two worlds. And... um, there's a question I, I'd thought about and being connected with Lisa, who, uh, through a fortunate series of events, told me about her research connected with Bernathan College, um, we started really delving into this together. And she told me about Raymond's hypotheses about different types of nonsense and what it might mean for dying people. And I thought, we ought to operationalize this. We ought to find a scientific, empirical way to study the words of the dying. Uh, you know, we have we have Raymond, who has this wonderful philosophy. We have Lisa, who is trained to analyze the elements of language. And we have myself, you know, as someone with a doctorate, with experience in conducting research, but also clinically working with people that are dying, um, that can put this into action and look at things like, what is happening to people? What is happening to their personality? And are the words that they are expressing, although possibly nonsensical, are they actually revealing something about where that person is going or what they're seeing or their experiences? And ultimately, how does that help the living? How does that help us cope? How does that help us when we're grieving? And um, so, you know, as we'll discuss later, the research study, research into the communications of the dying, we're going through a process of making sure that we can use our best empirical tools i mean how do you study the intangible right um but we're using the best tools that we've got to record people that will be uh expressing these strange utterances at the end and hopefully um well we'll see what we what we find yeah i can't believe nobody's done this yet i mean if, if a lot of people are going through this at, at a very meaningful time in their life yes so i'm just glad that you you guys are doing it now so we have the phenomenon kind of laid out and since this is swedenborg in life we like to try to always sneak a little swedenborg in there so this next segment we're going to take a look at a little bit of swedenborg's nonsense Okay, so I had received, you know, prior to this show, I had done some back and forth with the two of you and, and with Lisa, who we keep mentioning, it, who couldn't be here tonight, but 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 her spirit lives on in the conversation here. Yes. Um, so uh, what she sent me a lot of information about the the project and the phenomenon, and immediately there was a couple things that struck me as like, oh, I've I've read some more things in Swedenborg. So Swedenborg, uh, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time and don't know, he was a scientist a couple hundred years ago who reported these ongoing spiritual experiences and cataloged them very meticulously and described all these phenomena. And so I wanted to point out a couple of similarities that I found uh, between the two. So first of all, this is from Swedenborg's book, True Christianity 280. And this is where he's, to set the scene, he's describing uh, an out-of-body experience where he's interacting with people in what he would call the afterlife or the spirit world. Um, And he's trying to illustrate to them the difference between the way spirits think and the way people think. So 
let's let's dig into it. At that point, some of the people that were unwilling to comprehend that spiritual thinking goes so far beyond earthly thinking that it is inexpressible in comparison. For this reason, I said to them, do an experiment. So this is Swedenborg telling these spirits, do an experiment. Go to your spiritual community and think about something. Keep it fixed in your memory and come back and express it to me. They went home, had a thought, kept it fixed in their memory and came back. When they tried to express what they had been thinking about, they could not do it. They could not find any idea in earthly thought that fit any idea in their purely spiritual thought. And because of the ideas of thought become the words of language, they could find no words to express it. And it seems to me that if that's really what's going on, somebody who's sort of moving out of this world at the end of their life, maybe they have a foot in, in both of these worlds and in both of these kinds of thinking. So, so that was how it struck me. But Raymond, how does all this seem to you? Absolutely. And uh, what that brings to my mind to hear Swedenborg's words there is that, you know, probably the most nearly universal thing that people say to me uh, when they're trying to put their near-death experiences into words is no matter how articulate or educated they are or however many languages they may speak they all say in one way or another I just can't describe it to you it's <laughs> yeah. beyond words and so it makes sense that people passing over into some other kind of reality um, would talk nonsense about it. Uh, there are various ways of seeing that when the mind transitions from one state uh, or of existence or dimension of reality to some other incommensurable state of existence or um, uh, frame of reality, uh, that they would talk nonsense about it. And I think that what Swedenborg said there is very apropos to this process. Yeah. Now, with I didn't mention that of the 70 or so types of nonsense that I've, that I've identified and described, they all have one structural feature in common, and mm. that is that they respect some of the rules of language, but they violate other, other rules of language oh, interesting. So, that the, so that the outcome is unintelligible. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, Knowing that, you see, that gives us a backhanded way, if you think about it, of tracking the mind of dying people as they go into this process of dying, because we can study which specific rules of language they respect and which specific rules of language that they um, violate, and that summation gives us some uh, way of observing into observing the conscious process of dying people as I would put it uh, that way and I think it's now I am this is certainly not the major objective of the research because um, what the research is designed to just find out what people say at the same time it is not inconceivable here that this kind of research would actually be able to track people's minds or souls as they as they transition over into the other other side by this uh, this odd bipolarity I can put it that way of mm -hmm. of nonsense that it has both a rebellious face of uh, breaking the rules but also a conformist face of um, respecting the rules in a way um, 
Nonsense is kind of like the mythical figure Janus, right? Who had two different faces, um, looking in two different directions, two faces on the s different sides of the same head. And uh, Janus was regarded as, regarded as the god of the gates, signifying that he watched people coming in and coming out. And uh, that's not a bad analogy for what is going on with people in the terminal phase of life. Yeah, and the, the the potentials are so interesting that you could almost use the the structure of language as sort of a back door into exploring the nature of spirit and of mind, like you're saying. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that it's just really excited for that research. And I, I, uh, I want to read another Swedenborg quote that I'll I'll pitch to you, Erica. This is when Lisa had given me the um, the material for this. Uh, she had done some of her own categorization of uh, the basic traits of the kind of nonsense uh, people speak when they're getting close to death. And one thing she wrote is that their speech often describes various kinds of physical motions and disorientation, high-frequency use of prepositions referring to non-visible or intangible points in space. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, that's Swedenborg. I mean, not not everywhere, but if you, we'll take a look here. This is something from his what's called spiritual experiences or journal of spiritual experiences. This is sort of the, the raw data. He had these sort of published works that were more polished, but this is where just daily he was writing down, this is what happened today. So this, we'll just jump right in here. These are overhead, very delicately performing their spiral motions, finally creating an almost uninterrupted, almost inter uninterrupted sounds. And there are those being introduced into these rhythms or gyres. They are people who would despise the virtues of a moral life. But in this matter also, the general discussion of gyres should be kept in mind. I won't read the numbers. They are up above, not far from the head, and in fact, to the left and to the right, depending on their types. And there, you know, you have Swedenborg, who is very much in possession of a, a rational functioning mind. He was recording all these spiritual experiences, but he was still functioning in the Swedish government. He was still writing and publishing. His brain was intact, but yet the things that he writes there, they, they sound like the, the, almost the words of, of people who are dying. So what do you make of that? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because it's certainly you get the sense of being discombobulated, yeah. right? The, the language in itself, and this is the power of language, the power of narrative, is that it it can shift you, it can transport you, and that there's so much value in just narrative for that purpose. Um, I think what is fascinating for me is that when we're looking into the communications of the dying, um, there's so much... There's so much speech and metaphor. There's so much reflected in symbolism. And what we're trying to figure out is... Do people die the way that they lived? And so for Swedenborg, the language that he's using, even though it seems nonsensical, I believe is probably intentional and mm -hmm. is purposeful. And it's it's almost like cracking cracking a code. And sometimes this happens with people who are seriously mentally ill, someone who might be schizophrenic, for example, who is trying to get a message across to you in symbols that are foreign to you but make so much sense to them. And you're shifting between these two states of consciousness. And uh, there's a great researcher by the name of Charles Tart who basically says, why should what makes sense in one realm of consciousness make sense to you in another? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you, if you try to tell someone about a dream that you've had, Oh, a yeah. dream doesn't Futility. make sense, no. right? You know, you're, you're chased by a monster, and yeah. all of a sudden you're itty-bitty, and there's colors, and you can feel yeah. all sorts of sensations. We were at Brad's house. It didn't look like his house, but it was his house. You know? <laughs> right, and, yeah. and, and to you, it makes perfect sense in your mind. But mm -hmm. trying to recount that state of consciousness, which is very different than waking, 
does not transfer over into this reality where we have Newtonian physics and we have yeah. certain ways of viewing the world. And so for me, very much in in the language Swedenborg is using there, something is happening where he's got metaphor, he is very aware of what he is saying. Yeah. Yeah. And yet we're losing context, we're losing features that, I mean, it's just, it's spiraling us out of control. At the same time, yes, Lisa has identified people are often physically transported. Yeah. They, they discuss movement, uh, motion, they discuss seeing things, visions, deathbed visitations and visions are very common. So within that small passage right there, um, we're seeing a lot of similar phenomena that are being discussed today. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, it's just so interesting to see, you know, if he was there and able to have at least time to organize his thoughts and write them, you know, how much more someone doing it on the fly as they're nearing the end of life. So it makes sense that these kind of things would pop up. Okay, Raymond, this next one is for you, and, and then we can hear your commentary on it too. But this is going to be sort of a personal story. Um, I actually have a photograph, Raymond, of you and my grandfather in the, yeah. and we can pull that up on the screen, that there, you're in the archives of the Swedenborg Library. Um, and this was, I guess, in the, the late 70s. Do you remember that meeting? About 77 or 78. <laughs> yes. Yep. I remember it. Absolutely. I went to Bryn Athens and lectured to the theology students. Great. Okay. And so. Also public lectures as well. Okay. And so I wanted to bring him up because. I have an example of, of his nonsense. Uh, you know, he's passed away, and um, when he was getting close to dying, um, he couldn't speak anymore, um, but he could write. You know, he, he had an IV in his arm, so it was a little tough, but he could write things down. I actually have a picture here of some of his writing. It's a scan of some of his writing, so it's lost some in, in the digitizing process. But this is one of the last things that he wrote, and I want to read to you guys what it says. Um, it says... Uh, and this is a description that he had of he said a lot of things that were very lucid, you know, what he'd written down that made a lot of sense. But this one stuck out as more of this sort of nonsense speech that you guys are saying. He said, too bad I cannot tell of all I have seen. Representations, real, played out by nurses, etc. Suddenly the representation appears. Today early the Lord told me in representation, you're not going to hell and you're not going to heaven. So I stopped quickly in between. Do not fear. You'll die, but we will see when. And just a note that the thing you you guys at home can see above me, that's the last thing that he ever wrote, but we don't know what it says. So so another kind of nonsense, script, script nonsense. But I wanted to, to put that quote into the conversation because I feel like it fits so well with this, um, this theme we've been discussing and that there is meaning, especially he was a student of Swedenborg, and Swedenborg would always talk about representations and things so that to somebody else you, you might not, what's he talking about, nurses are doing representations, but maybe the, his Swedenborg knowledge informed that a bit. So I just wanted to put that out and, and see what your, your thoughts were on it, Raymond. Well, this is certainly comparable to, you know, what I've heard from so many people um, and for such a long period of time. And, you know, I think that we are here into a situation where, again, as you as you mentioned, uh, Curtis, is nobody has really looked into this. Yeah. Sometimes there are anthologies, literary anthologies of people's last words. Um, <clears throat> however, those tend to block out the ones that are unintelligible because they think they're insignificant. Mm -hmm. right. So the, the virtue of this new kind of research is we're going to be listening to everything that dying people uh, say without making any prejudgments as to what might be the significance. And um, so, 
you know, I think that this is something that has been um, ignored and, and passed over, probably incidentally because um, Plato was, was very interested in nonsense, and even though he understood the true-false distinction, which he pretty much was the first person to lay down, he also was very um, impressed by the importance of meaningless, unintelligible language and made many um, observations about it. He observed, for example, that one thing can be more nonsensical than some other thing. Hmm. And he observed that nonsense sometimes makes people laugh and, um, and, and many things. But his, his pupil Aristotle, who was the person who framed our logic, was, I gather, the kind of person who was just terrified by anything that had to do with the irrational. Mm -hmm. So his favorite word for nonsense was um, random talk. Mm -hmm. But actually, nonsense is not random talk. Nonsense is paradoxically more complex than ordinary meaningful language. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of it geometrically, and I'm putting my hands here to be this sort of mid-level, um, most people, if you think about it, think of nonsense as something down here, below the level of ordinary meaningful language. Right. They think it is something sublinguistic. Mm -hmm. But actually, we can very easily see that nonsense is actually more complex than ordinary meaningful language, because to explain a piece of ordinary meaningful language to you, all I have to do is refer to the meaning rules that it goes by. But to explain a unit of nonsense, I have to explain not just the rules it respects, but also the, the uh, rules that it violates. So that's a more complex problem, making nonsense not something down here below this level of the uh, ordinary meaningful language, but something up here above the level of ordinary meaningful language. And I call that supervenient language that it mm. supervenes on or in some way depends on the, um, the ordinary meaningful language that makes it up. And uh, nonsense in that, in that sense has all kinds of remarkable effects on people's minds that we did not anticipate, have never been cataloged before, but are easily demonstrable. For example, if you can get up the pizzazz to talk nonsense to somebody and not let them know you're doing it. In other words, talk nonsense to them with a very, with a high confidence and act like you're talking something sensible. Then it sets off this unconscious mechanism. People aren't even aware that they are doing it, but they will talk nonsense back to you without mm. even uh, being aware of it. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the mind when we talk nonsense. It's it's uh, very common in television advertising, for example, and I don't mean to be putting it down, but nonsensical combinations of words get people's attention. Paradoxically, people pay closer attention to, to nonsense than they do to ordinary meaningful language because the mind is set up to try to find meaning in something. So yeah, when more they memorable. hear nonsense, their mind works overtime to try to put some interpretation on it. 
All right. Well, you you convinced me we should study this stuff. I mean, it sounds pretty interesting. Uh, so, well, let's. This is a good segue into our next segment where we'll actually be talking about some specific projects. So, let's take a look now at the frontier. All right. So. In this part, we've described the phenomenon, seen some interesting tie-ins with, with both Swedenborg and, and my grandpa. And I was just also thinking, yeah, this has got to be a common phenomenon. If there's the two of you studying it, and I'm the only person who's not studying it, but I happen to have a direct <laughs> example of someone I know doing that. Um, uh, so it's got to be widespread. So these are the specific projects that are kind of looking after it. First of all, I want to get to the books that both of you are working on right now. I'm going to start, Erica, with yours. You have a book um, that is called uh, Grieving for the Sibling You Left Behind, right? Uh, or, Grieving or, for the Sibling You Lost. There, the lower there third is. has it right. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And, and this is separate from the research that we're doing now, but certainly a lot of my experience has been informed. Same, same area of the world. In a similar realm. Yeah. Um, I've worked quite extensively with teenagers who have lost a brother or sister and realized that uh, there are very few options out there for them as they recover from grief and seek to find meaning. So I was contacted by New Harbinger Press and they asked me to write a self-help book for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what we're doing is we're taking them through um, education about grief and we actually include things like spiritual experiences, what happens when you might be contacted by someone um, and and you don't know what that means and you think you might be going crazy right. or what if you're having uh, issues of depression or anxiety or trauma, how do you cope with that? And we look at um, different therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, existential psychotherapy, which is all about making meaning from your loss and also narrative, telling your story of loss. So uh, that book will be out in September 2015 and then I'm working on a proposal right now to actually help people reintegrate back into life after having a spiritually transformative experience. So yeah. people that have had this, as Raymond says, ineffable experience that have gone to the other side or had an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience, how do you come back and talk about it and how do you connect to people? Because ironically, the, the after effects of having these eye-opening experiences, um, they can result in people feeling really isolated and alone. Yeah, and I've I've seen that just in in my work uh, online with the Swedenborg Foundation. People will write and say, "I've I've had this great experience, and now it's really hard to be back exactly here." So that that sounds like awesome stuff. Um, and Raymond, I know that you're working on a book right now called "The Unintelligible Afterlife." And do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, I I uh, I got to laugh at this one because this is. Um this is the direct extension of my doctoral dissertation <laughs> that I wrote in 1969. And the um, funny thing, there's about a, I condensed my doctoral dissertation down into about three paragraphs of this uh, <laughs> new book. But basically what it, it does, you know, the great uh, philosopher uh, David Hume, who lived from 1711 to 1776 was one of the founders of what we call the the um, scientific mind because he uncovered a really interesting feature of inductive logic which is used in science and he also made some interesting analyses of the concept of causation one of the basic notions of science and um, Hume was asked to write an essay on the afterlife question and he made the observation I think if you 
listen to these words as I say them and think them through for yourself, you will see that Hume was absolutely right on. Because Hume said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. And he went on to say, some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Now, he was probably being ironic there, and what he meant probably was that it's impossible, right? Because yep. we've done very well with Aristotelian logic for 2,300 years. I mean, what's the chance we could find some new species of logic? Plus, we think we know our minds pretty well. And so, how, how possible does it seem that we could come up with some new faculties of the mind that, that would enable us to comprehend that logic? Well, as impossible a task as that seems, it is actually quite easy once you think of how to do it. And that is that by applying the principles of Aristotelian logic, which is a true-false binary code in effect when you're thinking logically you're thinking true or false right and mm -hmm. and reasoning along those lines but some things uh, fall outside of that true or false distinction and yet they're very important and as Hume pointed out one of them is sentences like there is life after death well now we with this logic of nonsense as I call it that's going to be published in uh, France at the end of this year um, the um, and hopefully in the United States uh, soon thereafter. But um, I'm very excited about this because I declare, and I'm, I'm really kind of asking for refutation here, because, but I do believe that there has now been a genuine breakthrough in the rigorous, rational investigation of the question of life after death. And it's going to involve changing our, not, not, abandoning the logical principles we have, but to adopt new ones that enable us to logically and rationally think about questions that technically are unintelligible and meaningless, such as the afterlife question. Well, that's my book, and then um, Lisa's book, about which I'm also very mm -hmm. uh, excited, is called Words Between Worlds, and she is, again, she's writing about her research with um, the dying utterances of people who talk very figuratively, enigmatically, and often even nonsensically while they're in the dying process. Excellent. Yeah, and I'm just trying to decide if I'm going to go to France to try to pick up your book early or if I'm going to wait until it comes to the States. Uh, either way, I'll, have, I mean, I'll get both editions. Um, all right, so we've, we've got these books coming out on the subject, and then let's close by talking about the, the research project itself, research into the communications of the dying. So do you want to give us an overview? Okay. I would love to. And, you know, as I'd mentioned earlier, what's very important for us is that we have um, the scientific tools to test Raymond's and Lisa's hypotheses. Mm -hmm. And we are so lucky at Bernathan College to be able to do this research um, with a wonderful spiritual mission and foundation that really supports this found this research mm -hmm. so what we're doing is we're in a process of working with a review board and that review board will protect our human subjects and make sure that there's no risk to families or there's minimal risk uh, because this is a very sensitive yeah. issue safety first safety first mm -hmm. and so this is a very long and delicate process but we are moving towards <clears throat> 
creating a protocol whereby we're actually placing recording devices at the bedside of people that are in the active or pre-active dying phase. And that is roughly the last six weeks of life. And that's a pretty hard thing to determine because, yeah. you know, anyone that's witnessed the dying process, it can go faster, it can go slower. Someone yeah. can be on hospice for months. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're going to be with family and patient consent. Um, if this is all approved, we will be recording final words and any unintelligible utterances that don't make sense or that seem strange, uh, Lisa will categorize from a, a linguist perspective. She'll break down the elements of language. I will categorize thematically to see what's happening to a person's personality as they're dying. Uh, what do their spiritual beliefs, if they are um, Swedenborgian, New Church, or if they are Catholic or Jewish, yeah. are they... Uh, speaking a metaphor that might make sense to those particular right. yeah. religions. And uh, we hope to create some themes that ultimately help us understand how to better communicate with, with people at the end of life so that ultimately loved ones at the bedside don't have to be afraid of what they're hearing. And when, when there's a visitation happening, you know, I can tell you, for example, um, my grandmother who passed away recently, the last time I visited her, she was talking about it was nighttime and is everybody asleep and are, are, are we allowed to go in there? And she was referring to people outside of the room. And I found that if I could join with her in her reality, say, you know, no, Bobby, we all have to go to sleep now. She would calm down. Her agitation would kind of slow. And, and we could have this conversation about something that didn't make any sense. But she was able to take her medications. She was able to work with her providers as long as we entered into her reality. And uh, as opposed to saying, you know, Bobby, you're, you're talking crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, actually engaging. And I think that um, from the psychological perspective, that is our goal is to help people join at the end of life, create these relationships whereby death doesn't have to be a process that people are, are shielded from. We can still communicate with the dying. We can enter into their realities. They can join back into ours. There's a wonderful phenomenon called terminal lucidity where, yeah. you know, someone will be completely demented and all of a sudden there are clear as day instructions as to where to find a will yes. or, you know, right. um, final thoughts. So by having these recordings that we can actually analyze um, and create themes and understand better, you know, people shy away from this because it's, it's strange and it, it means we have to look at what happens at the end. And yet we will have a wealth of information to apply to Raymond's work to understand from Lisa's perspective about, well, what does language actually mean at this stage? And psychologically, how do we help families cope? And it is um, a tremendous opportunity that we have at the college that nobody that we know of, we've done extensive literature reviews, nobody has been able to scientifically study this process because... Mm -hmm. It is so delicate, and we want to make sure people are protected and fully yeah. informed, and that's why it's taking so yeah. long. But you want to research what? Right. Yeah. We yeah. get a lot of, and everybody's got a story about a deathbed experience, mm -hmm. and they're not always positive, of course. Yep. So we are proceeding very, with much trepidation and respect for the process, and I believe that this is, um, this is a, an important study for us to do as a researcher. I... I want to have as little bias as possible to say what I hope we will find, mm -hmm. but uh, certainly I think we will be uncovering themes and implications that will be guiding us for years to come in the field of end of life. Yeah, and I see what you guys are doing, not only as 
potentially investigating any kind of you know where does the spirit go but also helping people deal with the dying process as you're saying which i think in our culture we need to get better at that so certainly uh raymond do you have any thoughts on the research project yes certainly that as you're indicating there the helping aspect of of this is the most important aspect of it to learn new ways to help the families of the dying communicate with their loved one as they're, as they're in the final process and so on. So that kind of helping professional aspect of it is the most important. Then there will be the descriptive aspect of the study. This will be just as obviously going to be revolutionary new work where there will actually be a, a rigorously uh, rational uh, analysis or description of the the um, dying utterances of people as they are passing away. And thirdly, and I put this thirdly because it's really sort of the least, um, uh, the least uh, focused aspect of this. I mean, certainly not something that the research will focus on, but it may be that, um, that by monitoring the communications of the dying, assuming that maybe at some point the mind or soul does uh, transition over to some other uh, kind of reality, it is conceivable that we can detect that uh, point or that process and actually follow the mind of the or the soul of the dying person as they enter into another world. It's fascinating. Why, why wouldn't you want to know that? Matt, could we get that uh, lower third back up again? Uh, so we have two ways to, if you guys want to get in contact, there's an email address and uh, this is just preliminary contacts that you can have and we have that down in the description as well. All right, so now we're going to get to the point where we take uh, questions and comments from, from all of you at home. So get those in. We're going to have a real quick video break and then we'll get to it. So, really glad to have everyone at home watching, and I want to prove that I'm actually glad you're watching by letting you have a, a voice in the conversation here. So let's take a look at a few uh, questions from our audience tonight. The first one comes via YouTube. Matt, what would you suggest to someone looking to have a career in NDE slash STE research and to help those with dying loved ones and loved ones in heaven? All right, so since Raymond's been in this field a long time, I'll give you first crack at it. <laughs> You know something, assuming we're talking about, say, here, an undergraduate student, let's say that, mm -hmm. what I would say is, by all means, major in philosophy. Mm. Um, psychology will help, too. It absolutely will. And yet, really, the big questions of that people are concerned with and in and, and the dying process, such as, life after death and grief and the uh, consolation and those things, those are issues that have been explored best, in my opinion, by the early Greek philosophers, uh, especially Plato. And so what I would say is by all means major in philosophy if you're interested in death. Plato said in the Phaedo, his dialogue the Phaedo, he said, 
uh, philosophy is a kind of rehearsal for dying, he said. Mm. And I, me I me remember reading that at age 18 and, you know, kind of responding to it positively, but at the same time not quite knowing what it means. But I can guarantee you as a 70-year-old that I understand it now. Plato was right. The best way of exploring the process of dying is to to see what the great philosophers have said and also by all means study psychology too because those things are very important um, in the uh, understanding the dying process all the defense mechanisms and all the many things that happened to the consciousness of people as they were dying what I would also say is avoid parapsychology don't try to go into parapsychology. That is a pseudoscience. Um, you know, in, in 2015 at least, um, anybody who tells you that they have scientific evidence of an afterlife, that's not correct. The question of life after death is probably the most important question of human existence. And perhaps partly for that reason, it is not yet in a format that it can be, test, it be tested by a a clear um, scientific test. Now the kind of work that Erica and uh, Lisa is, are doing is um, it's scientific in a different way. It's scientific in their procedures and so on, but, but this scientific it's not geared to answer the question of life after death. Although, as I said, it's perfectly conceivable to me that you could almost stumble into that, although it's not the primary focus of the research. It, I wouldn't leave. Uh, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that something will come up along those lines. You just stumble into it. Oh, look what I found—the answer to the ultimate question. And, and like, can I add yeah, to that a little bit? I, you know, I really, I, I want to thank Matt for this question because mm -hmm. um, I think the most important piece of it is to not. <laughs> not be deterred by people that tell you that this is not a field that you can research and that you can study. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So as, as a young person, I always right. knew I wanted to work with the dying. I knew that I wanted to study death and bereavement and to help people that have had these experiences. And when you're the person at the party that says, I'm really interested in death, you're kind of a, you're kind of a conversation yeah. killer. That's a tall you know? or something. But what's wonderful about um, where we're at right now is that there are a variety of groups on Facebook, um, the Afterlife Education Foundation has a, has a great website and actually an afterlife conference that you can go to to learn about this stuff with people like Raymond and Avon Alexander talking about it. Um, there are death cafes popping up where people talk about experiences with death. So there are a variety of opportunities actually out there in mainstream society in pockets of people that want to explore this. So I would say please don't be deterred by individuals that are uncomfortable with the topic. We're gaining more ease. The only way we're going to gain more comfort is to continue to discuss and push the envelope. And absolutely, I would agree with Raymond that uh, exploring philosophy, those questions that have been asked since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. and also then clinical and applied psychology, um, and even the way I went through it was social work, was being at the web, uh, at the bedsides yeah. of people that were going through it to, to help um, learn how to best counsel them. So there are so many ways to do it, and, and the time is really right for people that are interested in, in getting into the field. Yeah, so there you go, Matt. And I hope
you'll I'll have you as a guest on the show a year or two from now. Um, all right, thanks. Let's let's get to our next question. Uh, this is from David on YouTube. Can more people on their last days be counted who see spirits from the afterlife than ones who come back from an NDE? So, or is it more common for people to to have uh, uh, these this like when I'm getting close to dying, I'm seeing something than the the near death experience? And Raymond, do you have a, a sense of which might be more common? I absolutely do, and I'd never thought of it in those terms before, so thank you very much for that question. Mm -hmm. and, and first of all, I may be wrong in my answer, but it strikes me just from my clinical experience that it is probably a bit more common for people during the dying process, just as they are easing into death, it's probably more common for them to... Um, talk about seeing the apparition of a loved one than it is for people who come back from a near-death experience. I would just guess from putting it all together in my mind that I suspect there's probably, I've, I've heard a figure from a study in Spain that it's about 40% of the people who are dying in a hospice will at some point talk about seeing the spirits of their loved mm -hmm. ones. Whereas I don't think it's quite that high in people who have a near-death experience that they see spirits of the deceased. Although they certainly do. Sometimes. Yeah. Excellent. Erica, do you have anything to add? Well, he's the master, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to whatever he yeah, says. But um, I, well, I, I do think do that, that it is... Because I might be wrong. Like I said, <laughs> but it's just... Well, <laughs> yeah, the, the studies that I've read, um, percentages of people that have NDEs, if you look at uh, just studies of um, cardiac death in hospitals, mm -hmm. it's usually around um, in the 30% range of people mm -hmm. that have NDEs um, and that come back with some sort of account. And that ranges from seeing their chest be beaten on during you know chest compressions or uh, just the tunnel of light some of the features in the NDE that have been described um, only very recently have people started to look into deathbed visitations and um, what's happening in the dying process and a lot of those reports that we have right now are pretty anecdotal which means they're, they're not really connect collected in a scientific way so there's there seems to be a lot of accounts coming up, but we really don't have a good number. I would suggest that people look into the research of Peter Fenwick, who's done okay. a lot of work on um, apparitions and deathbed visitations, and that might give an idea as to um, what's happening for people there. Yeah, so more of a gut feeling at this point. Yeah. But, but <laughs> you know, potentially, yeah, it seems like it's, it's popping up all over the place. And that... that so it could lead, it's not going to, but it could lead into the conversation of why do some people get these visitations or experiences and why do others not? We've touched on it in this show before, but we just we just can't go there right now. We've got other questions to get to. Let's take a look at our next one. This is from Medj on YouTube. Do you think that the nonsense can be thought transfer, like Swedenborg, with angelic beings or people mm. who are welcoming? So she's referencing Swedenborg would talk about inter seeing... Um, interacting with with spirits of certain kinds and instead of speech you would get sort of this transfer of thought oh, and it could it be that people are receiving messages in that sort of way and that's changing their speech so Raymond do you have a thought on that well I don't know as a general rule but I know this I do feel I am convinced from within that in some cases nonsense does convey a transcendent meaning Mm -hmm. And let me give you the example that is most significant to me in my life. <clears throat> I have a wonderful son named Carter who is, is uh, 
16 and a half. Carter was born July 20th, 1998. And he is Mexican-American by heritage. Um, we, uh, he, and he was born in Kerrville, Texas, and we were there for the birth. We had already made an arrangement and a, formed a bond with uh, the birth mother, who was then 16, and her wonderful parents, um, their, her mother and father. And uh, so we had gone down there before the birth to make arrangements and so on. And um, on the day that Carter was born, the obstetrician delivered him and uh, handed him directly over to my wife, Cheryl. So he's been with us from the very beginning. Hmm. Now, Carter is a wonderful, sweet, just one of the most wonderful and sweet people I've ever known. And when he was three days old, because you know the baby customarily stays in the hospital for three days, right? And mm -hmm. on the third day, we took him home out of the hospital in Kerrville, and we had him in this little uh, baby carrier, the uh, seat thing. And uh, my wife and I and Carter went to a restaurant there in Kerrville, Texas, with um, the Carter's birth mother and her mother and father. And we were all sitting around the table, and uh, and the, the what we were talking about was that Carter would always know about his birth family, and that and as time went on, there would come a time where uh, we would all there would be a reunion, and Carter would. Uh, see his birth parents and, and birth grandparents again and so on. And that was July 23rd, uh, 1998. Now, sitting there and talking about these things, I looked up and I spotted a humorous wall placard on the wall of that restaurant. And this is what the wall placard said. Closed. I have gone out to find myself. Hmm. If I should arrive before I return, please hold me till I come back. And I can't but understand that that was Carter's message to all of us. Hmm. About April of about two and a half years ago, or April of 2011, it all came to pass, just like the wall placard said, because Carter's uh, biological grandparents and his biological mother and father, who subsequently had gotten married, were all there, and we had that reunion. That, and now, what else? I mean, you know, it's, it, you can't shake the fact in my mind that there is something highly significant to that, that... That was Carter's message. That the nonsense, as it, 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 it as it is, closed. I've gone out to find myself. If I should arrive before I return, please hold me till I come back. That's nonsense. Yet mm. it is a perfect description of what of what Carter was telling us, or the message he got through to us that day. Mm. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that story. Yeah, so feels angelic to me. Uh, so thanks so much for the question. Let's take a look at another one. 
This is from Joanna on YouTube. I heard many dying people speak of traveling, etc. Is this because they know they are soon moving to a new loca locale? Can you elaborate on this? Mom was asking me to pack and catch our train. So, Erica, what do you make of wow, that? Wow, I, I so oh. wish that Lisa were here. And I know Raymond mm. feels the same way because she has categorized people. And, and I am very crudely summarizing her brilliant research. Um, she says it is very common for people to speak of being transported. So they are never actually doing the moving themselves. There is a train coming or there is a car or they are, whatever the modality is, people seem to be being moved by something. Mm -hmm. um, the deeper question as to whether the dying know that they're going to a, a new locale, um, I would say it's I would imagine it's possible that there is some level that knows that we are going on a journey and we're using um, language of being moved because that makes sense to us in earthly terms. Um, but I guess I would say in response to that is it is so common. I mean, Lisa can tell you how frequently she sees this kind of language yeah. that there's certainly something to it. Now, I, I don't know because we, we can't go back and ask these people, did you know? You yeah. know, um, you fill out this survey, right? Yeah. But I, I would say, pay attention to that, and I, I would ask your loved one questions. I would say, well, well, where do you think the train is going, and who's mm -hmm. on the train with you? Are is there anyone with you? What does the train look like? Ask those questions. Get them to elaborate because those answers, those are the things we're we're trying to figure out. You know, what is known and what isn't known. Um, as the person starts to leave their physical body. Is there a new kind of knowledge that's arising in that process? And uh, the only way we're going to know is by asking those questions. So I, I encourage people to do the same thing. Excellent. Thanks, Erica. And thanks, Lisa, in absentia. Um, we're going to take a look. We're, we're just about at the end of our time. We're going to take a look at one more question here. Uh, so this one comes out of YouTube. Richie, I always wanted to ask Raymond about Dr. Eben Alexander's NDE. So, Raymond, this is Richie's chance to ask you, um, do you, do you know about even Alexander's experience and, and what are your thoughts on it? I do, and I have had the pleasure of knowing Evan for, I guess, over three years now. Hmm. And uh, he is just a delightful, wonderful person. I, I uh, as many know, he was for 15 years, I think, at Harvard as an um, academic neurosurgeon, professor of... Uh, uh, neurosurgery and a, and a very academic person and um, let's see I think Evan is 60 years old now he had spent his whole life in science and like many other people in neuroscience his theory of consciousness was what is called epiphenomenalism which is the idea that only the material substance of the brain and the chemical and electrical reactions within it are real mm -hmm. and that what we experience as consciousness is sort of a secondary illusory byproduct of the um, of the brain I had never bought that at all because I I started you know as a philosophically minded person and it occurred to me very early in life that consciousness is primary I mean you know I can know that I'm aware and conscious but the fact that, I mean, it seems to be that there's an external world, but I only think that because there's patterns in my consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. But it's wonderful to me to see 
Eben's transformation. Now, his near-death experience is what I called an ascension experience. He doesn't remember leaving his body and going through a passageway. He just all of a sudden was whooped up to some higher realm of existence. And th this occurs sometimes too. And um, what I have been just delighted to see in my relationship with Eben over the last few years is for me as a person with a background in philosophy it's just fascinating to see how someone who has always been an epiphenomenalist is now aware from personal experience that that's not going to work mm -hmm. and it's just wonderful to see his spiritual and intellectual process of integrating the knowledge that he now insists that there is uh, there are other realms of the consciousness and existence beyond this one Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone at home, for the questions. Those were great questions. And Erica and Raymond, thank you two times for coming on the program. It was really great having this conversation with you. And I'm really excited about all the research that you're doing in the books and everything. So, so thanks so much for, uh, for letting me hear about it today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Curtis. All right. So everyone watching, we're going to be back here next week. If you want to support this program, help it grow, feel free to make a donation to the nonprofit Swedenborg Foundation. Uh, and yeah, hoping you'll join us next Monday. Same time, we're going to be talking about a little subject called the spiritual history of the human race. So see you next week.